Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by your other host, Paul Jay, for part two of my discussion with him on the recent arrest of Russian anti-war thinker Boris Kagerlitsky. Hopefully you've already watched part one and have enjoyed that content. If so, please consider donating to the show so that we can continue making these episodes. You can go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen and get onto the, our mailing list. That way you won't miss any future episodes. See you in a bit with Paul. So I don't think China's position is so socialistic. Let's put it that way. Um, there's a real mix of what I would say, a kind of central planning rationality mixed with a nationalist, geopolitical, uh, great nation mentality. Um, and it's, a, it's it, 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 you know, if you compare Chinese decision-making to American decision-making, I think the Chinese are more rational when it comes to geopolitics, generally speaking, um, as a state-managed capitalism, it's been brilliant in the way um, it's accomplished its uh, external commercial relationships in terms of Chinese national interest. Uh, China is now the major trading partner of almost every country on Earth. You know, the U U.S. talks about competing with China. I mean, in many ways, China's already won in terms of uh, the trading relationships it has. Uh, I mean, China, I believe, is the number one trading partner of the United States, never mind just about everybody else. It's the, uh, it's the number one trading partner of most of Western Europe, certainly most of Latin America, Africa. And there's nothing the U.S. can do about it. Uh, and that's part of the American quandary. That said, I don't get why China isn't more urgently uh, dealing with climate. Um, and if you look at the heat maps, the, what the world looks like at two, three, and then four degrees, you know, China's already in a record-breaking uh, heat waves. And this, this is just the beginning. We're just at 1.2 degrees warming. And, then, you know, we'll be at 1.5 within a decade, and some people think even faster. I mean, you look at three and four degrees, there's not much of China left. You know, that said, there isn't much of the U.S., left either in terms of agriculture especially midwest the west coast so i don't get why china isn't more urgently screaming about this um, i think the chinese argument that the americans are being completely hypocritical about this is very legitimate i think the u.s talks a lot more than it does um, the uh, lack of phasing out of fossil fuel is the critical issue, obviously, and the uh, it's not happening. They're trying to you know keep talking about carbon sequestration and such, and that's mostly nonsense. And uh, they don't want to do what obviously needs to be done: nationalize the fossil fuel companies, America, phase them out quickly, as quickly as that energy can be replaced, and it can be replaced replaced quickly with a massive investment in sustainable energy sources. Um, and I don't know what to say about nuclear. Uh, it, it, you know, there's all various people, 
making the argument, even James Hansen, you know, the climatologist, that you can't get out of this without nuclear. Uh, others are arguing, well, if that's true, then maybe we have to reduce the size of the economy. Uh, maybe, I don't know if that's politically possible. I do know we need, as an absolute, to phase out fossil fuel as quickly as possible and, and phase in forms of sustainable energy. But we also have to figure out how to decarbonize. And that's going to take, I guess I said that already, there needs to be a massive, massive investment in a publicly run for the public interest, not some private sector boondoggle uh, project to figure out what real effective decarbonization is. Not greenwashing, not dangerous geoengineering that nobody even knows, you know, if it won't do more damage. But we do need to combine the phasing out of fossil fuel with decarbonizing the ocean, the growing of massive amount of trees, uh, regenerative agriculture. We're not putting much resources into to any of that because it's basically really being left up to the private sector in the marketplace with some government money to juice it. And you know, you know, some even if we move more quickly to electric cars and such, okay, it's something that's maybe better than nothing, but we're still not transforming how electricity is produced. Uh, so that's where we, our focus needs to be. And Ukrainians, as difficult as it is, when you have you know, soldiers, Russian soldiers, slaughtering your people, you've got to see the bigger picture because there won't, be a Ukraine in the future and do not believe uh, that the West is going to rebuild you when the West is in such crisis. I don't know how much the West would, would rebuild Ukraine, uh, even if uh, there wasn't such a climate crisis. Maybe they would. Maybe it'd be like a South Korea, which is they want to show how wonderful Ukraine is rebuilt as a model to try to undermine uh, Russia. And, and try to prove well, they're to the already giving out contracts to different companies for yeah. rebuilding. Yeah, but so it's probably one way or the other, it. it's going to be a boondoggle. <laughs> yeah, but it's not <laughs> it going to be, be rebuilding in a way which is sustainable. Yeah, so 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 to get back w without getting further on the climate thing and all the rest right now to get back to it. So that's why I think there must be a settlement of this more or less. Uh, along the lines uh, of where things are, because it, you know, without this war of attrition, uh, Russia seems dug in. Uh, even if a Ukrainian offensive, you know, has some so, some success, and I have no idea what's really going on in the battlefield. I don't know who to believe. Eric Schmidt, who used to run Google, who is a scientific advisor to Biden, was on TV the other day. And he, his assessment was very pessimistic that the Ukrainians could breach the Russian defenses. He said maybe they could do something with hundreds of thousands of drones, which they don't have. So they, it would mean the West would have to supply drones, ridiculous amount of drones. And who knows that the Russians wouldn't figure out a way to fight that. So, I mean, a, a war of attrition that go all, goes on for years is, is going to be devastating for the Ukrainian people, devastating for the Russians that are thrown wave after wave into this battle, and devastating to the world, never mind what it's doing in terms of 
grain exports and such and how much that's going to devastate parts of Africa, maybe Asia, and so on. But what it does to global politics. So yeah, I hope China and the U.S., and I don't know whether these recent meetings of Lincoln going and Yellen and, and before them, maybe more importantly, uh, the big tech leaders, you know, Gates was there and the head of Apple was there and Bla Larry Fink from BlackRock was there. I mean, say, the, the, the real power brokers of America, the, 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 one, the leaders of the billionaire class, they went to China and they seem to have sent the Biden administration a message to cool this thing down. This is getting nuts over Taiwan. You know, you, you, you know, don't you jeopardize this Chinese market for us. And we know that Gates understands the threat of climate. We know Larry Fink gets it. They're not doing much about it, but we know they get how serious it is. Um, and they know there's no solution without a Chinese-American collaboration. But the Chinese are saying something interesting, which is not illegitimate is that, okay, fine, you want to collaborate on climate. They said this to John Kerry, you know, the American climate czar or whatever he is. Czar. Uh, he, they said, okay, fine, let's collaborate on climate. But how do we take him seriously, number one, when the last president of the United States didn't believe there was a climate crisis and we don't know who's next. So what if we're, we make all these agreements with you? You know, and in 2024, we're dealing with a climate denier. Two, you're waging chip wars against us, trying to restrain our economy. And then you want to have collaboration on climate. Three, you're, you're sanctioning technology we have to make better batteries for exactly dealing with the climate crisis, to, to make the better solar and, and wind power energy, because, you know, the batteries is sort of a weak link in the chain there. And you're, so the Chinese position isn't illegitimate. And then they get caught up in, in the conflict over Taiwan, which is all nuts because it's clear the Chinese don't want to invade. But the more the Americans provoke them, the more the hawks in China. And that's the thing is that this is not, we're not dealing with some monolithic entity in China. There's, there's a lot of splits and divisions as there is in every country. And the, the hawks in China are saying, okay, this has gone too far. You're offending our national dignity. And these elements of humiliation and national dignity are an important part of the narrative of how the elites in every country maintain control. So even though they're, they're objectively nonsensical, the issue of humiliation and national dignity have brought us to the brink of nuclear war many times, and, and right now we're looking at it again. You know, why won't Putin get the hell out of Ukraine? Why doesn't he go back to February 23rd? There's no strategic reason. It's got nothing to do with NATO. It's clear Ukraine's not getting in NATO. Why? Because it would be humiliating. There's no other real reason for it. It would be humiliating. Why did Kennedy blockade Cuba? Not because Cuba was any threat, the, the Soviet missiles in Cuba. They were no threat. McNamara told Kennedy, this is a political problem for you domestically. There's no objective strategic issue of these missiles. Mm. There's nothing these missiles could do in Cuba the Russian subs can't already do. So, but Kennedy risked nuclear war to avoid humiliation. And, uh, you know, we, 
the problem is we live in that world, so you got to deal with it as a factor. So what's the conclusion of all this? And this is where Boris and I you know, disagree. Uh, I, the West, with China's help, does need to give away for the Putin state to get out of this without looking the fool. Well, you were speaking about China's reaction to the U.S.'s attempt to decouple its economy from the Chinese economy, which is incredibly difficult to do given that they rely on each other's uh, markets for exports. Um, but there's, you know, some analysts have said that this attempt to decouple the U.S.'s economy from China, if it goes too far and it antagonizes the Chinese and doesn't have the desired effect, it could actually lead to China being emboldened to invade Taiwan. I don't think the U.S. is serious about decoupling. Uh, they can't. You, you, are you giving up on a market of a you know billion and a half people? Uh, it's. I, there's no seriousness. What there is seriousness is trying to strengthen American productive capacity to better compete with China in the global economy and not be so dependent on China for production and the issue of chips is a big issue because the chips that matter are made in Taiwan. Now, the company that's the leading company, chip manufacturer, um, is itself fairly integrated into China. Much of the Taiwanese chip production actually happens in China in plants designed by and run by the Taiwanese company. Um, the guy that owns the, this, the, this, the major manufacturing chip company is actually for less antagonistic relations with China. And, and one must understand, Ty, there's no way Taiwan is not monolithic on this issue of relationships with China. Much of Taiwan, both elites and population, just want the status quo. And they're not looking for independence. There are sections of the Taiwanese elites and some population that are pushing full-fledged independence. And the far right of the United States is pushing it too. And other than some crazy ideological motives which exist in the U.S. and maybe in Taiwan, um, it's it's a it's a almost war that really serves the military-industrial complex of the United States and for that matter, Taiwan. I mean, for years, apparently, Taiwan has been buying these weapon systems, which cost Taiwan a fortune because they're not, you know, it's not like some other places like Israel that gets all kinds of subsidies from the United States. Taiwan actually pays for these weapons. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the weapon systems Taiwan was buying were, were ridiculous because they were so massive, they couldn't have been used against a China invasion that was really, it was like one paying tribute to the U.S. for protectionism. It's like a protection, Ellsberg used to call NATO a protection racket. Well, that's to a large extent what U.S. has going on with Taiwan. Um, but also domestic players make a lot of money in these contracts, whether it's through outright corruption and bribery or other ways, uh, uh, you know, getting local spinoff contracts, uh, of the U.S. military uh, weapons purchases, uh, so the, the there's a lot of money to be made in almost war, not actual war. The the an actual war 
most analysts think goes nuclear pretty fast. Or if it stays conventional, the Chinese win. Um, so it, it, it's, there's a conflict of economic forces. Like I've said this before, Boeing's a good example. And the, Boeing, Taiwan's an important uh, purchaser of Boeing weapon systems and military aircraft. Um, maybe I think Taiwan might be in the top 20 purchasers of Boeing military stuff. But China, at least still recently, and I think still, because the China, one of the things China is not as advanced in is commercial aircraft. China was, and I think still is, one of the biggest purchasers of Boeing commercial aircraft. So in one company, one part of the company wants less tension with China and sell more commercial aircraft. And another arm of the company wants more tension over Taiwan so they can sell more arms. The system is not rational. It's filled with these contradictory interests, and the policy reflects that, the, the foreign policy. And especially American don't know what the hell to do. But to get back to your question, the only country place in the world right now that's really well positioned to try to bring Ukraine war to an end is China. Will they do it? I don't know. Maybe they're making some noises that way. When the uh, one of the senior people in the Chinese foreign ministry was asked, why don't you come right out and condemn the invasion when you say you support the UN charter and the issue of, of sovereignty? Uh, his answer was, well, somebody's got to be able to be able to mediate this thing. Well, if that's the reason they won't come out and condemn it, and I don't think that's the only reason. I think right now Russia's being turned into a practically a satellite of China. So there's good, you know, from a pure nationalist interest, there's geo geopolitical interest to have let it carried on this long. But I think that interest is coming to an end. The, the longer this stalemate goes on, the weaker and more bled Russia becomes, the more desperate it becomes. And, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this and we might as well now. Some of the voices in Russia, leading foreign policy voices, uh, are calling for using tactical nuclear weapons against Poland, not against Ukraine, you know, because they still want to act as if Ukraine are our brothers and all this, as they slaughter tens of thousands, but against Poland, because the uh, only real threat Russia has here. The only real weapon is the nuclear threat, and nobody they're saying will really take it seriously if you don't do it. Mm -hmm. And and they call it it's a it's a it's a it's a part of the Russian military doctrine. It's called escalate to de-escalate, and it actually I was just being this was explained to me yesterday by an expert in Soviet and Russian nuclear planning. It was at a, at a time when the NATO forces were far weaker, conventional NATO forces were weaker than Russian. Um, the NATO always had as an option, if we started losing on a conventional battleground, we would go nuke to balance things. And the threat of going nuke made up for our weakness conventionally. Well, now things are flipped around the other way. Uh, 
Western Europe, the NATO forces in Europe are conventionally much stronger than Russia. If it was a straight conventional fight without nukes, uh, the West would win, I'm told by everybody who knows these things. I mean, we can see right now they can't even win. Russians aren't even winning in Ukraine, never mind against the whole of NATO, including the U.S. Um, so the Russians are doing what NATO said. If we start to lose conventionally, we will have to prove we're willing to use nukes. And the way to prove it is to do it. And there's voices in Russia that are saying, if this thing goes on, you know, for years, it saps our ability. There's only so long we can sustain war of attrition in Ukraine. And if we start to lose, the only answer we're going to have is give up. The collapse of the Russian state, which means the re resignation of whether it's Putin or whoever's next with Putinism after Putin. And that's the most likely thing right now that follows Putin is, is another Putin or even someone more hawkish. Um, or use nukes. And they're saying if that's where this ends up, we might as well do it now. And they're right to give to give some context to our viewers. Um, the the expert or analyst you're speaking of is Sergei Karaganov from the Russian equivalent of the Council on Foreign Relations. And I believe at the beginning of June, he published a piece called uh, Difficult But Necessary Decision, which sparked a huge debate among other policy thinkers in Russia. He was essentially arguing that uh, the, the, the threshold for using nuclear weapons should be lowered because the West is no longer really um, scared or, or fearsome of Russian nuclear or Russian um, saber rattling, so to speak, and that some sort of preemptive attack would essentially be the, way, be the way to go if the U.S. and Europe were to continue supporting Ukraine. And I think that did spark a debate. Uh, there were some people in other policy circles in Russia which uh, you know, condemned this position and said that there would be no, there, there would never be an instance in which uh, a preemptive strike would be justified because that would just spell the end of Russia and, and, and Europe, obviously. Um, and in response to that, he actually wrote another piece called There is No Choice, Russia Will Have to Launch a Nuclear Strike on Europe. So he even doubled down on that position. Um, and so I do think he represents a certain segment of, you know, Russian debates, and it's pretty insane. But I, I mean, the person who actually has the nuclear codes is President Putin, and we don't really know what he's thinking. In the Russian state policy uh, documents from 2020, it does say that um, a nuclear or a tactical nuclear attack or the use of nuclear weapons could be justified if the existence of the state were to be put into jeopardy. And that's a really tricky um, categorization because what does that mean? If the regime is put into jeopardy, if Putin's regime is put into jeopardy, does that then justify a strike, or did he just, or does that doctrine just refer to Russian, the Russian state? If the Russian state is is put into jeopardy, so that's we don't know how. Well, what I, I thinking think or how he's thinking. So yeah, uh, yeah, what you're referring to is very important. The uh, this what's this guy's name again? I, I always Karaganov. Yeah, Karaganov is not a nobody. Um, right. This the counts. This the equivalent of the Council on Foreign Relations goes back into Soviet days. It is the assembly of the leading foreign policy thinkers of Russia, 
um, when they have their annual conferences, Putin speaks there sometimes, the most recent one, Lavrov spoke there. Mm -hmm. um, they are a very serious body, and this guy, Kraganov, is the chairman of the Presidium, so he's like the leader of this thing. Uh, he's, a, he's a serious foreign policy voice, and I, I, I've talked to people that know him, and he's been a hawk since Soviet days. Hawk in the Soviet and then Russian terms, which means, you know, the, the way to deal with the rest, with the West, is with the most aggressive posture possible. And of course, the West has given lots of reasons to think that. Um, so, the the Congress that happened just after he wrote those pieces, uh, where Lavrov spoke, Lavrov didn't say what he said. But he also didn't say anything against what he said. Uh, but what they did say at this Congress, and this is where the issue of what does it mean uh, the Russian state's at threat, they define what's happening now in Ukraine as a war with the West. This is, this is not a war against Ukraine. Um, now, the Ukrainians of course, don't agree with that. And and when they, this is called a proxy war in the West by some Westerners and people of the South, that's only partly true. You can't discount the agency and right of the Ukrainian people to resist this. But the Vietnam War was the same thing. You know, you know the Vietnamese waged a national liberation war and this was their, their war, but that didn't mean it wasn't a form of proxy war. This was for the United States, they didn't really care what the hell happened in Vietnam. This was all about uh, national liberation movements moving towards socialism, and thus an alliance was what people thought was socialist Soviet Union. I mean, you can debate whether it really was or wasn't, but that doesn't matter. It was going to take Vietnam and then other national liberation movements out of the Western sphere of capitalism. And that was the reason for the war. And that's the reason for the Ukraine war. The Russians do not want you, Ukraine to be part of the Western sphere of capitalism. They want Ukraine part of the Russian sphere of capitalism. And why is there a separate Russian sphere of capitalism? Because the West didn't want Russia in the EU. Because they didn't want to have to deal with the potential... They didn't another... want Ukraine in the EU. No. Didn't want okay. Russia, the West. No, the West. Oh, wants, I see what you mean. Yeah, the West wants Ukraine and the EU. They want to extend the Western sphere of capitalism, but they didn't want Russia because they didn't think they could control Russia. The the history, the culture, the size of the country, uh, the size of the armed forces, the fact it was a mass, you know, an equal nuclear power. They didn't want that in the EU because it would have become, the EU would have become such a rival of the United States that it may have really become its own sphere of capitalism rather than the EU being part of the American sphere. And the Western, West European elites didn't want it either. They didn't trust, you know, for historic reasons and, and more contemporary reasons, they didn't trust how powerful uh, Russia would get within the EU, and then all the other EU 
and, and even the Germans to some extent, but imagine if there'd been a German-Russian alliance in the EU, I mean, uh, leading the EU. What would that do, American hegemony? So, so that the reason Russia isn't is fighting for a Russian sphere of capitalism because they were excluded and they were, you know, they, they want the West wanted Russia to be a, an oil producing rump state. And that was okay with the Russian oligarchs for quite a while because they were cashing in, they had their yachts and this and that. But as time went on, the Russian state became stronger. And now we're at a stage where. In, and I'm quoting more or less from this recent Congress of this foreign policy group, where they're calling Russia a state civilization, which is the Russian nation, the Russian people, the Russian language, the Russian religion, the Russian values, which they, they stress uh, over and over again means family values between the mat, like marriages between men and women, like it's very homophobic. Uh, the, the values are toxic um, and not very different than American Christian nationalism. Um, in fact, it really is a form of Russian Christian nationalism. This, I think, they're very similar phenomena. Um, so. Within that context, they're saying, they're being these foreign policy, Russian foreign policy elites, a long drawn out battle in Ukraine might lead to such a weakening of the Russian economy and this government, but this government means the Russian state, which means Russian civilization. They identify the state and Putin, not like a political party in the West, like if Biden goes down, somebody else comes up. You know, the, the, which party comes to power in the United States doesn't threaten the state, at least it never has so far. Mm -hmm. The state is much stronger than any particular one leader or particular party. But in Russia, that doesn't seem to be the case. The, the Putin and the, the bureaucracy around him, the military around him, uh, they're too intertwined. And, and, and anyway, the analysis seems to be, if I'm understanding it correctly, um, long drawn out war in Ukraine is a threat to the Russian state civilization. If it's a threat to the state civilization under this doctrine, there's justification for the use of a tactical nuclear weapon to prove to NATO and the West that we're willing to do anything to defend this state civilization. Now, China has actually warned about this. You know, I read this thing, Global Times, all the time, which is essentially an English-language website run by the Chinese party. And they have said, be careful what you wish for, West. If, if Putin gets desperate enough, if they think this is going to be the downfall of this Russian state, and then to use the Russian terminology, state civilization, um, you don't know what might happen, meaning nukes are not out of the question. So we're in a very, very dangerous, dangerous moment. The, I, I just talked to Nikolai Sokov, who worked in the uh, uh, Soviet and, and, and for a couple of years under Putin, under Yeltsin, in the Soviet 
uh, arms negotiations. He was a top negotiator with the U.S. He knows Soviet thinking and Russian thinking very well. He says he has never, ever in his life, 40 years involved in this, heard public statements about using tactical nuclear weapons. He says sometimes privately, you know, there were conversations like that, that it may come to this. He's never heard about it, that such things could be declared at such senior levels. Um, so then the argument goes, well, you can't submit to Russian black, nuclear blackmail. Why not? Somebody has a gun to your head. You don't submit to the blackmail of getting shot in the head. I would. Uh, you know, of course, it's up to the Ukrainians. You know, they don't want to submit to it. Okay, that's their right to keep fighting. But we don't have to risk it. Um, and more importantly, as I said, the climate issues are, are, are even more threatening than the rhetoric coming out on, on nuclear weapons. But it, it shouldn't be taken so unseriously. So in the final analysis, what does it mean? We, I think, and this is where Bo I go back to, Boris didn't agree with me on this. So Boris's thinking was if the war goes on long enough, sections of the Russian military will overthrow Putin. Uh, there's sections of the oligarchs that want this war over. And thus he thought Ukraine should keep fighting because it will lead to the downfall of Putin and what do they call it, the nomenclature, the bureaucracy around Putin, and will create an opening for more revolutionary politics in Russia. I can't say he's wrong. Obviously, he knows domestic politics way better than I do. I mean, Russian domestic politics. Um, I, I only know this. I, mean, I should just say, you know, as a Russian revolutionary, which is what he is, his perspective, his frame he looks at this in is how to advance revolutionary politics in Russia. And he thinks this, 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 the victory, success of the Ukrainian war leads to the downfall of Putin. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's a hell of a risky calculation. Uh, you know, lots of people who analyze this, who, including Russians who are against the war, are not so sure what follows Putin isn't worse. Uh, right now, Sokov is telling me uh, Putin's main battle is not with the Kargalitskys, uh, it's not with the left, it's not with the liberals. His actual main battle is with the hawks who want an even more aggressive approach to the war in Ukraine. Um I think well, Putin's yeah. calculation is that the Russian population doesn't want more bodies coming home. And he's got a fine line there about how many lives he can risk. And digging in is the better strategy, which is what he seems to be doing. But the right in Russia apparently is very strong. So I think as a progressive living in North America, I advocate for whatever it's worth. Not that that many people care what I advocate anyway. Um, that no further arms should go to Ukraine without being late to an insistence on negotiations. Two, those negotiations need to include referendum, UN-run referendums. There should be like an immediate ceasefire and immediately, as quickly as possible, organized referendums. There may be other steps that have to be taken 
Uh, but let me address one thing, this issue of war crimes. And, and, and Zelensky has said no negotiations with Putin. He should be charged with war crimes and all this. Yeah, of course Putin should be charged with war crimes. But by who? Who has the legitimacy and credibility to charge and try Putin for war crimes? The only way to do it is that the United States would arrest uh, George Bush and Dick Cheney and put them on trial for war crimes in Iraq for launching the Iraq war. And you might even consider arresting Barack Obama because under international law, as I understand it, he actually had an obligation to pursue, investigate, and charge Bush Cheney for war crimes. That if you don't uh, pursue them, you become implicated. And Obama may have other blood on We know he has other blood, blood on his hands in terms of drone warfare and such. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, the, you know, certainly not the British government who was whole hog in in the Iraq war. And in, in terms of history, nobody has more blood on their hands than the British Empire. Um, I mean, go on. Where exactly is it that, that, that has some credibility? Because even some of the countries that weren't so involved in the Iraq war, you know, take Canada, it wasn't very, you know, really wasn't much involved. But as a complete collaborator with the U.S. and every other kinds of wars and, and war crimes. So any serious talk. No negotiations without charging Putin all that. It, it, it's, it's complete nonsense. It's only said because of, to avoid any negotiations or as a propaganda thing. So, right, yeah. I've discussed this also with, with uh, Colonel Larry Wilkerson in the past, too, that John Bolton was the one who negotiated um, certain deals with other countries so that they wouldn't be held liable for war crimes or for other crimes they'd committed before. Uh, the International Criminal Court. So essentially, the International Criminal Court has no jurisdiction anymore to try American war crimes and hostilities. Yeah, and the U.S. never signed the agreement to be in the ICC, so uh, as, as did Israel and such. The uh, anyway, it, it, it is beyond stupidity to have that kind of rhetoric, and and maybe Zelensky has to go before these negotiations can take place. I don't know. This, you know, hagiography about Zelensky. I mean, he could have taken NATO off the table and maybe this wouldn't have happened. So he, to make, turn him into this great hero. The Ukrainian people are fighting a heroic fight. There's no doubt. And they have a right to. But the thing is, though, is Zelensky would probably be the only one with legitimacy legitimacy if he actually did decide to negotiate with Russia and to say that there should be some sort of yeah. ceasefire. I mean, I feel like probably more people would follow him. So for but him the to Americans before... are saying we won't do it if, you know, the Ukrainians don't want to. And that's nobody. There's no reason why the U.S. can't say, well, fine, don't negotiate if you don't want to. But we don't have to give you arms if we don't want to. So obviously the U.S. has re enormous leverage. But so does the Chinese. You know, the Chinese can say, listen, you negotiate or we're going to find our fossil fuel somewhere else. And to a certain extent, Turkey as well. I mean, Turkey under President Erdogan, for example, um, they were the ones who negotiated the, the Black Sea grain deal. And some argue that Russia pulled out of the deal because they were upset with Turkey for, you know, giving back five um, Azov fighters who were fighting in Mariupol, for giving them back to 
Ukraine instead of to what I mean initially they agreed that they would keep them in Turkey until the end of the war and that you know allegedly upset the Russians and so I don't know who has more leverage in their relationship in, in Turkey and Russia's relationship but potentially Turkey can emerge as also negotiating some sort of ceasefire but it seems like they're they're also for Ukraine joining NATO I'm not well sure. all things nuts because you know Russia's pissed Turkey off with canceling this grain deal because Turkey was making a lot of money out of this grain deal. Uh, and now, so in some ways, Russia's pushing Turkey closer into NATO. Of course, Turkey's already in NATO, but uh, anyway, the whole the whole thing is nuts. Um, but I uh, to go to the very beginning of all this, I hope people do watch the Kardowitsky interview. I, interviews actually, we'll we'll put them all up on one page. And 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 let's not forget, Boris right now is sitting in jails somewhere in Russia. They moved him to somewhere in the outskirts, and uh, it's very possible he's looking at seven years and maybe more. His daughter said in the interview, uh, "That's just the beginning of the charges. They can come up with a lot more charges." So uh, Boris could be looking at quite a bit of jail time here. Well, thanks, Paul, for joining me to speak about uh, Boris's arrest and the war in Ukraine. We obviously hope that Boris will be released as soon as possible, and our thoughts are with his family. And if you enjoy this content and you enjoy watching Boris Kagerlitsky's interviews that Paul has done uh, with him in the past, then please go to our website, theanalysis.news. Consider donating to the show, getting on the mailing list so you're always updated whenever there's a new interview published and also go to the YouTube channel the analysis hyphen news you can hit the bell so that you're notified every time there's a new episode and like and subscribe to the channel see you next time mm -hmm.